Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Gabby Reese and welcome to the show. The most recent breakthrough information, which is, I think, very exciting, is that the immune system is reversible in terms of the way that it has been damaged, injured, or scarred, and that we can rejuvenate it. And the body has processes that are built within it that allows that to happen. If they didn't, if we didn't have those processes, we'd collect so much injury in our immune system within just a few years, we probably wouldn't be able to survive. How do we build our resilience? How do we build our reserve? It's all about reserve because there is no human being that's escaped life without trauma, some more than others. So the way that you manage trauma is by building resilience. And the most important resilience you can build, I believe, is in your immune system. Hi everyone, welcome to the show. My guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Bland. He started out his career as a professor of biochemistry, and now he has been, well, for a long time, since the 90s, working in functional medicine and the functional medicine movement. But his latest focus has been on the power of immunorejuvenation. What does that mean? Really, the way that our body and our immune system is turning over, that let's say we did everything perfect, you could have a new immune system in eight weeks. So Dr. Bland, who has authored a ton of best-selling books, he has over 120 peer-reviewed research publications, he talks extensively on this topic, is not only, of course, is it how we're using phytonutrients and using food and plants as power, but how is our microbiome communicating with our immune system and what are the things we can do to support our microbiome? Because about 60% of our sort of immune system is a reflection of the health of our microbiome. So he has really, since 2018, he's locked and loaded. He's got his uh, new project called The Big Bold Health, and he's advocating for the power of immunorejuvenation and how to enhance immunity, not only for you individually, but at a global level, whether it's regenerative agriculture, being a better environmental you know, steward, planetary health. And I think in this day and age, with things feeling out of control a bit, it's that reminder to kind of quiet things back down and almost focus on, I don't wanna say that the basics, but the things that we can control. So taking better care of ourselves and doing it specifically in specific ways to support our, not only our microbiome, but ultimately our immune systems. And I think we're all interested in that. And for me, just this idea, and I bring it up in the podcast, In your bone marrow, every 10 seconds, you make 1 million new white blood cells. So this idea of, yes, we have scarring that we pass on in our, you know, our immune system and our cells, and we have all these things that happen. But if we can start to move in the direction strategically to do the right things, we can genuinely rejuvenate our immune system. So I hope... There is something in here for you to take away and use in your real and everyday life. Enjoy. 
Dr. Jeffrey Bland, thank you for meeting me over. I wish I wish these ones were in person, um, but I'll take what I can get. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Gabby. How was your holiday? Oh my I'm, word! It was uh, it was kind of a goosebump experience because I spent it with my kids and grandkids, um, and we we were really doing something that we had never done before in a fourth, which was to think back in each of our lives as to meritorious 4th of July's and what stood out the most for us. Now, my, my grandchildren now are older, so they range from 12 to 19. So they have a few 4th of July's under their belt. Of course, my kids have decades now, and I have more decades than I want to talk about. But it was quite fun to really see that what it came down to was the association we had of shared experience in celebrating our evolution as a family. It was really kind of cool mm. that, you know, the fireworks were great. We talked about different places we'd been, different kinds of experiences that we'd had. But if it did kind of distilled down, it was the shared experience of watching us all grow up together and see how our memories work. You know, some were fun, some were, some Fourth of July's had more in, in, issues associated with them, but it was all part of an evolving family. It was kind of a fun experience. I think it's so beautiful too. There's something about, I mean, you know, we always, we have like holiday Christmas and all these things, but there's something about, and I don't know what it is, summertime, hot, picnic-y food, that energy of summer and then the family all getting together and that energy is, it is a a really unique gathering, I think. Yeah, it is. And I I actually did a fun thing. We live close to um, a state park that allows for, allows camping on the beach. And so um, I rode my bike down there. I go down there quite frequently because I like to hang out when the sun is setting. And um, I like particularly going down there in holiday periods because you've got all these families, some in tents, some in motorhomes, some, you know, in uh, trailers of different types. But everybody's out there around their campfires. And it's, it's kind of cool to see what socialization occurs among different generations when you get outside, you get away from the noise, and you really are able to just talk about what's important. Yeah. And speaking of that, Dr. Bland, I uh, I want to I, I, this will be that'll be the simplest part of the conversation that you and I have today, talking about family. <laughs> if that says anything, and people always hear about functional medicine, and I think for me and my my personal journey in medicine, I I've I was fortunate enough to get introduced to this idea of functional medicine, and and um, I, I think it was maybe Mark Hyman who, you know, you've been at this a very long time, and um, and before it was. I don't want to say popular, but just this idea of people thought of like, okay, you have a doctor that, you know, sort of practices one way. And thank goodness we have people like yourself where there's maybe a bigger opportunity to pay attention to some of the other parts of our health that um, maybe not only will help us heal, but maybe keep us out of trouble. And so I'd love to ask you actually first, you know, why functional medicine? When you had a choice in the 60s to, you know, you're, you, you know, getting ready to take this path, what inside of you actually has the courage to do it a little bit differently? Well, that's a really, uh, really segues very nicely from the reflection on these 4th of July's because I think each of us have certain periods of our life where we go by a little bit of a way station and we ask ourselves, okay, I've come to this way station. Where do I want to go from here? It's a branching point. 
uh, for me, uh, having been in medical school and getting a PhD and then getting a job during the Vietnam War, which was not easy to get an academic job um, during that period of time, uh, and having a young family, uh, I had a pivotal experience that, uh, with my wife that was definitely a life changer. And that was when I came to my first job, uh, having finished up all that education, I'm very excited to start being a professor of biochemistry at this university, um, being new to the community, only having been there a few days, not even really understanding the geography. I woke up one morning to find our infant son, who is four years of age, dead in his crib. Yeah, that was um, a pretty strong experience that I only recently now, some 40, well, actually now it's 51 years, uh, can talk about rationally. And so I made the decision after getting through the trauma, uh, because he had died of what was called at the time sudden infant death syndrome. Uh, we have a much better understanding of that today than we did 50 years ago. Uh, I made the decision that if I could uh, direct my career, whatever I was going to do on the planet to help one set of parents or one child to avoid that outcome, it would be a life well served. And so it made me open to all sorts of new ideas. It, um, it kind of took the blinders off of uh, saying, well, you learn certain things and you do exactly what you're told and you follow the rules and, and then you get you know, certain advantages because you're being a good boy or girl. Um, I kind of made the decision that I wanted to find a path that might be in places that I would not have learned about that could help other people to avoid this problem. So I was open to all new ideas. And that, that uh, really was a transformational experience. Uh, his name was, uh, was Kurt. And uh, every year our family on his birthday has a celebration because it really did set me and, and our whole family free to open our slip with to new ideas. And um, you know, that then later became things like considering functional medicine and the like. So that that's kind of the, was the motivation for the last 50 years of my life. It's funny, Dr. Bland, I always feel like the greatest places we reach, it just always feels like we get catapulted there by something really uh, almost feeling impossible. I, I just, it's like you see that story over and over and not, none of us want to go through it. And yet it's just always, it, it just feels like that's the thing that launches us into these, you know, these other places. What, what is it? If if you don't mind me asking, what are some of the things that we know now that we didn't know uh, about about SIDS, about uh, sudden um, infant death syndrome? Well, it turns out, it, it, and this ties really to what we're doing right now with this new thing I've put together called Big World Health. It, it relates to the immune system. And um, this particular child had a very sensitive immune system from the time he was born. And uh, so... He had atopy and, and it was just more um, hypersensitive to the world about him. And we've learned that there may be many actual uh, specific causes of this SIDS, but it, they all seem to tie together with some kind of um, immunological hyperimmune function. And, um, and then that leads to respiratory distress and other kinds of complications that can be life-threatening. So it always then raised the question in my mind, you know, where do we get our immune system? How does it get poised and how does it serve us well or sometimes not as well as we'd like? Um, you know, he was the um, born of the same parents that had three other boys. 
none of who had that problem. So you might say, what is the uniqueness? And those are the things that set you in motion to try to answer the, com the complex question, because we know of all the parts of the body, the immune system is certainly one of the more complex. It is, it is extraordinarily powerful for us, but it's also very complex in its understanding. And I and I appreciate even the fact that you 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 talk about this rejuvenation of the immune system because I think a lot of people we go through things in our medical health and and God forbid we're diagnosed with something and then all of a sudden we identify with that we think that's who we are forever and ever and you you really talk a lot about you know immune rejuvenation and and some of the things we can do and regeneration because I think a lot of times we hear the words inflammation like we think you know, all things come from inflammation, but the other part of it is whether your immune system's either underreacting or overreacting. So maybe we could, and I know you get very sciencey, which I really appreciate, so I might try to dumb it down here and there. Please. Um, maybe we could just start with, you know, first of all, when people hear the immune system, it's, it's a series of things, right? It's your microbiome, it's your communication I mean, system, it's your transport system. Maybe we could just, you could explain a little bit first what makes up the immune system, and then we can talk about the exciting part of the fact that we can even set ages or rejuvenate and or regenerate our immune system. Yeah, thank you. I think it's a really good question. So, a lot of what we, uh, what I'm going to talk about now, quite honestly, is fairly recent in its uh, understanding. And this is a field that's rapidly expanding in the field of immunology, the science of immunology. So, uh, as you say, dumbing this down and trying to make it accessible sometimes is a, is a challenge because there is so much technical stuff coming out. But with that said, I think the major understanding that we now have of the immune system, it's, it's one of the only three places in our body where our inside activities communicates with our outside world 24-7, 365. The other two parts of our body that does that are our nervous system and our mucosal uh, barrier defense systems, so the epithelia that line our intestinal tract, that, that line our uh, respiratory tract, and the relationship they have to the microbiome. Because there's a microbiome not only in our intestinal tract, but there's a microbiome in the mucosal tissues that line our respiratory tract. And by the way, they talk to one another, interestingly enough. So chronic obstructive lung diseases like asthma and so forth actually ties together with dysbiosis and changes in our gut microbiome uh, and our intestinal uh, defense mechanisms. So if you then think of these as the three ways that our inside body is connected to the outside world, getting information all the time, which of those three is most able to change rapidly? And that's a very interesting question, again, a little bit sciencey, but it turns out that our immune system remakes itself about every two months. People don't under, probably understand that, that the immune cells that are in our body right now that are floating around doing seek and destroy defense for us are not the same immune cells that will be present in our body a couple of months from now. Some of these immune cells have lifetimes that are, you know, in, in days, very short lifetimes. So the question is, are the immune cells that are going to come to replace those that they're going to take the presence of, are they as good, better, or worse than the ones that they are replacing? Right. And it turns out for a lot of people, unfortunately, 
as they collect bad experiences in their life or from the exposures to toxins or quality in poor quality diets or uh, toxic stress, those things may make their immune system, the new cells, less resilient and less functional than those that they're replacing. They may be injured or scarred is the term that's often used in immunology. They, they remember scarring, just like we would scar on our skin. Now the question then, as you pointed out, is, is that a reversible process? Once you have a scarred immune system, are you just, that's a legacy, same on you, the rest of your life you're gonna have that problem. And the most recent breakthrough information, which is I think very exciting, is that the immune system is reversible in terms of the way that it has been damaged, injured, or scarred, and that we can rejuvenate it. And the body has processes that are built within it that allows that to happen. If they didn't, if we didn't have those processes, we collect so much injury in our immune system within just a few years, we probably wouldn't be able to survive. So our immune system has a recuperative ability. The problem is that the way we've been living often doesn't properly support our ability to rejuvenate our immune system. So we collect injuries and we can't get rid of them as quickly as we like. And so over time, our immune system ages, that's called immunosenescence. Now our resilience goes down and our aging birthdays may be actually less than the age of our immune system. And that then doesn't lend us well in defending against all these things that we've got to unexpected events that we're exposed to. You know, we're going to get into how, you know, food is medicine and, and using food and lifestyle and, and things like that. But let's say, for example, people have very stressful jobs and lives. And I think even now it feels like the world is a bit upside down more than usual. And, you know, maybe because what is it about 60 percent of your immune systems in your microbiome? And it's complicated. Like you get into like gut health and it's like, well, how do you, you know, it's like, how do you get that all evened out? Maybe we could just start at a starting point and say, okay, the things that you can see and control, like how you respond to stress, maybe obviously adding exercise. Um, do you have any practice yourself? I mean, obviously you have a, a you're in a connected family, which you hear people always talking about connection and connection, but this is a really big part of support for our health is that connectivity with people. But do you personally have any kind of stillness practice for yourself? Um, or is that just, you know, like for me, I use, honestly, my exercise time is my stillness practice. I know it sounds crazy, but it's like, it's all about me. I only have so much time in the day. It's like, hey, I'm not going to be able to meditate under a tree and then go bang iron. It's just not going to happen. Right? <laughs> so it's like yeah. people don't realize that you can actually use certain things also, though, to, to support you. So let's say we have we have lifestyle. So we have these relationships. We have how we manage stress, our sleep habits, our hydration, food, exercise. But I, um, I was wondering if you, because you do a lot of things, if you have any extra little things extra that you do that have really been supportive for you. Yeah, thank you. So um, I'm, I'm not sure if what I'm going to share is that, you know, earth shaking and uh, paradigm shifting, but let me just give you some insight as to how I see applying the things to my own life that, that are the focus of what we're trying to understand more about. So I go back to the fact that our immune system, in every one of our immune systems, is composed of kind of two different components. One is our early warning system that is the first um, responder 
and it is there to really jump on any problem as quickly as it can. That's called our innate immune system. And it turns out that this part of our immune system, this one of two different parts, has been kind of trivialized by immunologists over many years. And the reason for it is it is ancient. It, you can find this same system in very old organisms, even in, in microorganisms. There is a comparable innate immune system. Uh, it's very simple. In fact, it's in bacteria, it's called CRISPR, um, this gene editing thing you've heard about. That's how the uh, bacteria kind of protects itself in its immune system. Well, it turns out that plants also have an innate immune system, which is kind of interesting. And, and I'll talk more about how plants' innate immune system is connected to a human's immune system. But the innate immune system is where I start thinking every day about, is my first uh, responder group happy? Are they getting the things that they need to really be vigilant and they don't need a break and take a vacation? They're there to uh, be a first responder to anything that might be seen as a potential offender. Now, it's not just viruses and bacteria. It could be chemicals. It could be various types of debris. It could be bad food principles. And so our, our innate immune system is um, now being seen only recently as to be a lot more responsive than we used to think of it when we thought of it as this ancient system that just sits there and it just like infantry, it just goes through its work. Now we recognize that you can train your innate immune system. Aha! Just like we can train our bodies, our fitness can be trained, our cardiovascular and musculoskeletal uh, fitness can be trained, so can we train our uh, innate immune system. And we can train our innate immune system through utilizing metabolism because the function of our innate immune system, it's called immunometabolism, is intimately hardwired to our body's ability to produce and, and effectively manage energy. And energy, and then we think about where is energy produced in cells? Well, it's produced in the energy powerhouse of the cells called the mitochondria, right? And the mitochondria are very rich in the innate immune system cells, the macrophage, monocytes, dendritic cells. The, the, the players in this innate immune system have a lot of energetic machinery. So let's say that we're worn out and tired. <laughs> we're overly stressed. We're not eating well. We're, we're not getting good sleep. We're just sitting around worrying all the time, not getting any activity. All that energy machinery in your innate immune system is going to be affected in an adverse way. It's not going to be fit. Just as if you didn't do any exercise, your muscles and bones would be affected adversely. So what I think about every day is, am I doing my first responders the job that they expect me to do to keep them fit? Mm. And that means, am I consciously awakening each day with the thought that I've got this magnificent system there to work on my behalf 24-7, 365, but they're asking me to make sure I'm responsible for them uh, because it's a partnership. And so that's an attitudinal thing, right? It's, it's more than a specific intervention. It's an attitude, a belief, an assumption, a way of thinking, maybe even as you want to be, it's a joy of life about how you want to support your innate immune system. So that would be my first kind of philosophical con uh, consideration. Then secondly, what's the second part of our immune system? Well, that is this system that we have said is very intelligent. It's called the adaptive immune system. Now, the adaptive immune system is interwoven with the innate immune system, they're not totally separate. They crosstalk through certain immune cells called T lymphocytes. And so the adaptive immune system has a responsibility of remembering what we've been exposed to 
so that it will have an ability to respond more quickly the next time we're exposed. So that's where our immunity comes from, our, our memory effect of immunity. That's when we take a vaccination. That's what we're trying to do is to enhance our memory of that event. So the next time we're exposed, we won't mount, uh, we will have the proper kind of immune uh, defensive response. And so that particular system produces what are called antibodies. And out of antibodies are specific proteins that have a memory effect of having been exposed to a specific event that could be injurious to our body and can be mobilized upon need later. So the adaptive immune system, very intelligent, produces this wide collection of antibodies that really is a record. It's almost a biography of the things that we have been exposed to and how our body has, uh, has responded. Now, there's an interesting part of that story that's just emerging as it relates to children. Because we as parents, over the years, have become more and more concerned about exposing our children to things that might be injurious, like uh, things that live in the soil, or things that live in water, or I'm talking about bugs. And so we've tried to make our environment completely sterile. And in so doing, as we sterilize our, the environment for children, our adaptive immune system never learns any lessons. <laughs> it just sits there saying, well, I guess I'm just living in an idealistic world with nothing to, to activate me. And so then when that child grows up a little bit and they're inevitably going to be exposed, they have not had the opportunity to teach their either innate immune system to train them or the communication of the innate immune system with the adaptive immune system to be vigilant. So there's no memory of that experience. And now it overblows the experience, the response, because the body says, yikes. This is, a, this is something new. I've got to really call out the guards. So I think this concept of rewilding our environment, so we make sure that we get down in the ground, we, we get into the wild, we experience nature, we have pets, which are not uh, aseptic unless we're sterilizing our pets, hopefully not. And, you know, the kinds of things that expose us to uh, things that don't cause us to be sick, but get our immune system trained so that it is on guard already for future exposure. Now, let me talk about this one last part of this, which has just emerged in the last few years. It is probably completely antithetical to the way that many parents have thought about raising their children. And that has to do with allergies and foods, allergic foods. Like, let's use an extreme example, peanuts. There has been a legitimately uh, high concern about peanut allergy and it, in the extreme case, can be life-threatening. It, it can cause uh, death from anaphylaxis in a child who is extremely peanut allergic. Or maybe a little less dramatic example would be gluten. So there are many, many parents that are making the decision they want to remove all of these potential antigens being milk, egg, soy, wheat, um, anything that looks like it might have an allergy potential to remove it from exposure to that child's diet. Now, I'm, when I'm talking about children, I'm not talking about infants. So infants are a little bit different. The first year of life, that's the early stage of developing the immune system. You, you want to keep away from anything that's really a hard hitter. But after the first year of life, now it's becoming more obvious. In fact, just published last week in the Journal of the American Medical Association and in the Lancet Medical Magazine were two papers talking about sensitizing children after the first year of life to low levels of various types of food antigen to get their body to be adapted to them, like even peanuts, giving them low level of exposure. And what they have found is that low level of exposure then immunizes that child as they grow up to be more tolerant to those foods. So maybe in our best intention, 
to make the world completely free of anything that the immune system has to deal with, we've actually created a problem that is now being seen in, uh, as these allergic autoimmune type uh, problems later. So those are some of the things that are on my mind as it relates to how I try to uh, both lead my life, but also, you know, when my my family asked me what, when their uh, grandkids were little, what should they do? I said, be cautious, but be, don't be overprotective. You want your children to be exposed to some things so that their immune system will be fit. Yeah, I, I actually, I always think it's interesting that we don't like, we're not playing outside. We're not, you know, little kids eat dirt. Like you climb trees, you get cut, you, you're around pollens. Now everyone's on their phones, they're inside. It's everything is sterilized. And it is interesting. I, and to your point, I have a very good friend whose son has uh, quite a few food allergens and they are in a in an in intensive and measured um, program where they literally will have weeks at a time that they're introducing certain foods. They'll be like, oh, look, he's getting a tiny rash, but he gets through it. So I, I think that it's also important for parents to know that kind of stuff is out there where you can try to inoculate them against these things that and maybe initially they, they can't handle. Um, I, I just want to bring up something where we talked about how, you know, every two years you basically have a new immune system. So let's say someone's listening to this and they say, okay, I'm really, I'm, I'm going to, I'm trying to get my health as organized as I can. We can't control everything. You know, who knows what glyphosate, who knows what's in the air. You know, I always get to the place where I tell people you can do what you can do. And after that, if you stress out about, you know, oh, air, water, all our food, you can make yourself crazy. You know, it's like, but it, to stay proactive. So if somebody's listening to this, you do talk about people understanding their genetics and their microbiome as a as sort of a as a as a nice starting point um, to maybe because I always think maybe people need a step by step. So if we if we if we look at hey, are you doing the things your sleep, your exercise, all these things that we all know? Um, I always love it. Like people are you know up till two and drinking and being like I can't lose any weight, and you go yeah okay. I don't, you know, what do you want me to tell you? I, and they're stressed out and you just go, okay, go outside, take a break and go to bed. I don't know. But starting with your genetics and your microbiome, what do you find is a sort of a achievable way to enter in there just to get a snapshot of maybe what people individually are working with? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So, uh, you know, there has been a lot of pushback in some people about getting your genes tested because they say, well, it's not really going to tell me anything that's important. I I'm just going to have information I don't know what to do with. But I, I don't believe that that's actually true. I think that uh, by people having uh, their genes tested, what it will give them is a kind of a mosaic of the most valuable thing that they will ever own, and that is their book of life. And their book of life is coded in 23 chapters, half of which are written by your biological father, the other by your biological mother. Now, that book of life can be read in many different ways. You can read your book of life on the rim of the Grand Canyon in a beautiful sunrise, or you can read your book of life in a hostile environment in war. And that book of life, that same genes, will perform differently. That book will look different in terms of its story. All of those stories are in our book of life. The stories of rage, hate, fear, those stories are in our book of life. Also, the stories of love, understanding, acceptance, the things that come with uh, oxytocin, uh, of, um, uh, you know, universal being, all of those things are in our book of life. Now, what chapters do you want to read? I would like to read in my book of life, the chapters of enlightened 
self-development, and fulfillment. Love and passion and compassion. I would like to infrequently read the chapters of hate, rage, fear, danger. Now, those latter chapters, the ones that I just mentioned, are the chapters that are associated with a process in our body called inflammation. And inflammation comes from where? It comes from our immune system that's gone awry. It's gone from our immune, it comes from our immune system that feels endangered, unsafe, not at home. So if you want to lower inflammation, because we now see inflammation is related to every major disease, then what you want to do is you want to send the right messages for you to your book of life that regulates your genes that express themselves in your immunity as being at home, being friendly, being peaceful, not as being alarmed and being in a danger state. Now, how do you do that? <laughs> Easier said than done, isn't it? Because we do live in a complex world and we do have, you know, people say life is what happens in between our plans. Our plans may be very peaceful, but the, the life that's dealt out to us at times may not be as peaceful as we like. So how do we build our resilience? How do we build our reserve? It's all about reserve because there is no human being that's escaped life without trauma, some more than others. So the way that you manage trauma is by building resilience. And the most important resilience you can build, I believe, is in your immune system. You'd like resilience in your heart and lungs and kidneys and all your organs and your muscles. You'd like resilience. But the overarching part of your body that's going to be constantly communicating with the outside world and telling you how much you need to be on edge is your immune system. And so this construct that treating our immune system with respect and then as we so do become a partner with our immune system to have the health outcomes that we desire, so we, we then own our immune system, we're not a victim of our immune system. That to me is a really important part of this process. So your genes then, going back to the first thing, tell you something about the architecture of your potential. It doesn't tell you who you are, what you are, how you'll look, act, and feel, but it tells you what you might be. Now, the next step is to make your potential, which resides in your book of life, as optimally functional as possible through you treating the goodness of your genes with respect and keeping the alarm reactions at bay by putting them to, to, to rest because they don't need to be activated. Yeah, I now, think people, do do people hear yeah. often about epigenetics and they don't really understand that it's sort of like we've all got these panel and which ones do you want to try to switch on and which ones do we want to keep off? So to your point, when people are hearing that over and over, it's really understanding that opportunity. And so I, I didn't mean to cut you off. So please keep going. Well, so I think you said it beautifully. You know, people often say, well, Jeff, what you just mentioned sounds very interesting, but I don't quite understand. So let me go back to a maybe a simple point that everybody can understand. How did each of us start? Every human being. Every human being started with a fertilized egg. One cell. One cell. One cell type of fertilized egg. Every human being. Now you're going to say, but hold on just a minute. As I see it here today, no matter what age we are, what gender, I made up of, of all sorts of cells of different types that have different personalities. My cells in my skin are different than cells in my eyes that are different than cells in my lungs and, and so forth and so on. Yes, that's true, but they all came from the same genetic information that was in your single egg, your fertilized egg, that was you. How did that happen? It happened because in development, 
of you as a fetus and going into becoming an infant, each stage of that development led to only portions of your book of life being expressed, the portion that was going to be related to the, the development of that tissue, the nervous tissue, or the skin tissue, or the muscle tissue. And so you differentiated your body into these different components. Now, how did that process occur? It occurred by your genes being marked epigenetically by certain processes that regulated what would be expressed in that cell and not in another cell. So your liver cell has a different set of messages it expresses, even though it has the same hardware, its software develops a different message. That software is called epigenomics. Now it was thought until recently, and when I say recently, I mean within the last 10 to 20 years, that all of that epigenetic patterning happened in fetal development and infancy, and once we got to be older, we weren't marking our genes epigenetically. The major breakthrough in 21st century science, I think, is the recognition that, that it is true, that most of our genes that were imprinted in development stay that way, so our nerve cells don't become our heart cells, hopefully, but there are certain numbers of genes out of the 20-some thousand genes that code for our body, there may be a hundred or more that are epigenetically modifiable throughout the course of your whole life by the experience that you are living. Mm -hmm. Meaning that which you are may not be that which you will be based upon how you can epigenetically reprogram how your cells of all types are functioning. And the cells that are most likely to pick up that epigenetic repatterning, what we call rejuvenation early, are immune cells. So that is what we call immunorejuvenation, epigenetically reprogramming our immune cells to be younger in their biological age. When I think people don't, it's like, I, I, it's so easy to forget the miracle that is our system. I, I was listening to something you were talking about earlier, and you said um, in the bone marrow, every 10 seconds, a million white you know cells are made. And, you know, that's all, like who can get their brain around that. So I think it's also to drive home to people. So let's get a snapshot of who we are. You've got to consider your gut health in all of this because it's like you might want to work with yourself on on this and figure out a way to to sort of modulate your immune system because that's the other thing, right? If it's if it's underreacting or overreacting. So I think gut health microbiome people it it because again, you're talking about a very complex but malleable system. What do you find to be just the most let's say, reasonable way to get a look at, hey, how is my gut functioning? What are the things I can do to improve that? How would you, if someone comes, you know, how would you encourage someone to do that? Well, I think you're right on target. I, I love the way you're developing this line of thinking because the information that our immune system picks up comes from the experiences that our immune system is exposed to. And the principle shared common human experience that we all have is eating. And what do we eat? We eat a variety of stuff that has a personality. And you know, people have said in the years, well, nutrition is energy. Yes, nutrition is energy, but it's more than that. Our food is information. Our food is information for our genes. Now, how does our food influence our genes? In part, it influences our genes because our food influences our microbiome. The 
hundreds of different types of microorganisms that live in our gut. In fact, it's the second largest organ in our body. It's not connected to our body by the bloodstream. It's connected to the body through its absorption from the intestinal tract into the blood of its secondary debris or, or metabolites. So the microbiome, which weighs um, well, something like uh, three to five pounds in our gut, that's how many bacteria we have. Remember, they're very small. And we have way more bacterial DNA in our gut than we have back, uh, DNA in all of our body, in our body cells. So the DNA of the bacteria is, are creating their own messages, which is then being released in the intestinal tract with the mucosal surface of our intestinal tract being what's called the malt, the mucosal-associated lymphoid tissue. What is that? That's the body's immune system. So our immune system is sitting right next to the microbiome, picking up information from how the information from our diet is being translated by the bugs living in our gut into our own immune system that then responds as friend or foe. Mm -hmm. Now that then puts a big responsibility on, as you said, the integrity of our microbiome. And we know that the things that we do that are not in the spirit of proper support of our immune system are also in, not in the proper support of our microbiome. Now, let me give an example. The statistics say that about 40% of the American population suffers at one time or another from chronic irritable bowel syndrome, CIBS. And there are different forms of, there's diarrhea predominant, there's constipation predominant, there's pain that's predominant. So there are different ways it presents, but it is a functional gastroenterological problem that can, in some cases, as we've seen in our own clinical studies, cause people to have to put their desk right next to the loo in their office because they can't have enough time to get there if they don't have proximity. That's a pretty disturbing factor. It's not life-threatening, but it certainly reduces one's quality of life. Yeah. <laughs> now, what we have learned about chronic irritable bowel syndrome is it's not just locally only an intestinal problem that causes pain or discomfort of your intestinal tract. It also means that your microbiome is disturbed enough that your body's immune system is affected. So there are all sorts of other immune, systemic immune problems that are associated with chronic irritable bowel. Let me give you one, the gut-brain connection. People with CIBS also are people with more depression. Now, is that because they're depressed, because they have to worry about their intestinal tract? In part, it might, but it's also related to the fact that their microbiome is sending signals to their brain of disturbance, causing brain inflammation. Brain inflammation is associated with depression, mood swings, altered cognition, memory loss. So now we start saying the gut-brain connection through an altered microbiome can actually influence our mood, our outlook, our, our joy of living because we've now influenced our gut immune system to influence our brain immune system. And yes, the brain does have its own immune system. It's called the microglia. We used to think glia meant glue-like, that these were cells in our brain that were just there to, to glue together the neurons that do all the hard working of our brain. But over the last 20 years, we found, no, no, the microglia are actually functionally more than just glue. They are actually the brain's immune system that are communicating inflammatory signals to the rest of the brain and are aggravated by a microbiome that's disturbed and translated things like depression and mood swings. So now the whole field is exploding to recognize this system of interrelationships and how important it is how we eat, how we think, how we move, how we drink, and how that influences then the overall integrity of how we see the world.
if somebody feels like their gut, uh, maybe they've taken up to a better lifestyle and they're working on being mindful about their reactions to things, but they feel like, oh, something's not right with my gut. Um, do you, is there sort of a baseline test that you like that goes, Hey, this is a pretty reliable starting point because again, this, this can feel at times daunting for people to go, where do I start with the gut? Is there, is there a name of a test? Is there something that you like that sort of gives you a decent reflection of, Hey, this is something you can look at. Yeah. Thank you. I think that the simplest place to start is with, um, symptoms rather than actual going to lab tests or something that's more uh, quantitative. And so there are a whole series of symptom questionnaires that are related to intestinal function. We have what we call the immunoidentity questionnaire on our website that that probes some of those aspects. It's uh, on our Big World Health website that you can self-score, and it'll give you some answers about your GI immune system function and your, um, your state of your microbiome. But I would start with symptoms. If people have reoccurring gut pain, if they have gas and bloating, if they have problems of um, uh, gastric distress, uh, upper GI related to things that look like they have ulcers, but they're not ulcers. Um, If they have um, issues that are related to um, kind of rotating constipation and diarrhea, all of these things are indications that a person has a chronic disturbance of their microbiome. Then we can start drilling more deeply into the nature. For someone listening, you can go to Big Bold Health, and and um, I want to slide over, which it's perfect timing, where you have even, because you're so passionate about, you know, phytonutrients and the compounds and foods being supportive, um, plant compounds and such, I think you said there's over 25,000 compounds, you know, the sort of symphony that works beautifully together, but you also have supplements on Big Bold Health that will do some some combining some really you know beautiful way you know supplements that are available um what is the one omega uh dutch harbor omega so you i just want to encourage people too if they're looking for something um that they can they can find it there but maybe what got your attention with the plants i mean obviously it's important in digestion and fiber and all of these things but you sort of have gone a little more aggressively into this area. Yeah, thank you. You know, so uh, over the course of my professional life, I've traveled over 6 million miles. You know, that's, uh, if someone would ask me decades ago, would you expect, Jeff, that your life would have you traveling 6 million miles? I said, no rational human being would ever do that. That's crazy. But, uh, and it is crazy, by the way, but it's crazy interesting to the extent of the people that I've met all around the world uh, who are thought leaders and, you know, conceptualizers, innovators. And so I consider myself a little bit to be a collage of all these associations that I've had of these many people from, you know, the tens of different countries I've had the privilege of visiting. And uh, one of the things that came out for me was a very, very strong, this is probably about 30 years ago when I first got a chance to go to China, was the interconnection between the uh, traditional Chinese medicine concept and uh, the nature of what I was learning about plant chemistry, uh, because plants are very complex. They have all sorts of different things. We call them botanicals but or phyto, um, phytonutrients, uh, P-H-Y-T-O nutrients. And so I started to really um, be very, very interested in this field about three, three decades ago. This led me recently, without giving you all the bloody details, uh, to a meeting that I had with a... Um, 
colleagues had invited me to actually speak at a very large meeting in Harbin, China, a city of about 30 million people in the northern uh, part of China. I spoke to about 20,000 Chinese medical doctors at their annual health check meeting. And during that uh, visit, uh, my host, who was a Shanghai's gentleman, but he also had, had done his medical work in the United States, so he, he spoke very, very good English because my Chinese is very primitive. We got talking, and, and he asked me about a traditional Chinese food that went back about 2,500 years that I'd only just started to learn about called Himalayan, Tar Himalayan Tartary Buckwheat. And I said, well, that, you know, I've been just really interested in learning more about that recently. It's coincidental that you should bring that up. And I said, uh, so why, why are you asking me that question? He said, well, his group was one of the largest groups in China that was actually investigating the, the health benefits of this uh, crop that goes back 2,500 years as a food in China that uh, was not being used in the United States at all. And I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting. Uh, I said, well, is this, first of all, buckwheat is not a wheat. I don't ever know why they gave it this name. It has no relationship to wheat at all. It's not a member of the grass family. It's a member of the fruit seed family. But uh, anyway, it has this name, buckwheat. We, so, we, didn't, and what is, we didn't grow it right because it just all took too long, <laughs> right? I think so. So, so Tartary is, comes yeah. from the Tartan region of China, this Himalayan region. And so I, when I got looking at this crop, I found out that it had developed these unique genes over its years, millennia of development to be very resilient to a hostile environment. It was living on the slopes of the Himalayan mountains in bad soils, crummy climate, no irrigation, no pesticides, no fertilizer, no uh, irrigation, but it was doing well. And it was a, it was a principal food. And when I studied its um, genes, I found that about 25% of the genes of that plant are used to make this rich array of immune active nutrients that helps the plant to be defended against its hostile environment. Those are called polyphenols and flavonoids. And it turns out that it's the highest in these immune active um, phytochemicals of any plant food that I could find. In fact, it's 50 to 100 times higher. That's not percent, that's times. 50 to 100 times higher in these than common buckwheat, which we know something about here in the United States. So with that, then I became very kind of um, taken up by rebringing back Himalayan tartary buckwheat in the United States. And I found there was only one grower had a little hobby farm, an ex-Cornell University ag researcher that was retired. He and his wife, who's a nurse, had a little hobby farm of about 10 acres growing Himalayan tartary buckwheat. They had a little mill. They would sell it in roadside stands in upstate New York during the summer. Really dedicated, interesting people. And so that then led over the last three years to us now um, getting a whole cooperative of organic farmers to grow this for us. This gentleman, Sam Beer and Lucio Beer, his wife, became our partners. We now bought their product. They're, we have his seed. He had the only seed in the United States of this particular cultivar. Now he's part of us. And now we are the largest farmers of Himalayan tartary buckwheat and producing the only organic form of it, as far as we know, in the world and trying to bring this back as a new additional food into the American marketplace. And interestingly, because this is a family farm type product. It doesn't require a lot of agribusiness to do it. A lot of ag chemicals, it's done chemical free, um, regenerative agriculture. So it's been really fun to watch these small farmers and their families now become Himalayan tartary buckwheat farmers. And because we're able to pay them a gainful amount for the, the crops they're growing, 
they're they're making a living now being Himalayan turtle buckwheat farmers. So here we go. How how are people consuming it? Well, we have a food lab. Mm-hmm. I brought back uh, several of the people who work with me as dietitians and nutritionists, uh, food development people over the last 30 years. So we have a Big Bowl Health Food Lab, and we've developed recipes and menu guides, and we had, we've had food contests. We have chefs around the country that are now developing menus for us and recipes, and it's become kind of a movement. It's, it's really fascinating to watch it kind of take on. It took us the better part of two years to actually get enough of this that we could do something with it because you can't go to the seed store and buy the seed. You have to grow the seed first. Then you have to use that seed to plant further acreage. So just this last year, uh, 2021, we really had a big enough volume that we were able to start really making uh, movement forward in, in getting this more well understood. And if someone wants to, can they find, uh, can they purchase on Big Bold Health the product? Yeah, they can go to Amazon and they can find right. it or they can go to, to Big Bold Health uh, direct. Uh, and right. we then made concentrates because not everybody is a baker or a cooker. So we now have concentrates. We put it in shake mix. We have it in concentrated forms and capsules. So we try to make it available through many different delivery systems. What is T-H-O-B-A? Oh, that's a very good <laughs> You're being very good with me here. Um, so it turns out that the deeper we dove into this Himalayan tartary buckwheat story, the more we learned of the unique things that that plant makes in its products. One of is a phytochemical that you can't find in any other plant called 2-hydroxybenzylamine. So that's H-O-B-A. We, we abbreviated 2-HOBA. And you only find 2-HOBA in these buckwheat varietals. Now, why is that interesting? It's interesting because, coincidentally, if there are coincidences, as I grow older, I'm not sure there are coincidences. I think we just kind of get ourselves into a situation where we meet people with common thinking. And so I ran into a gentleman at uh, Vanderbilt University Medical School in uh, Tennessee who was studying 2-HOVA as a chemical for the treatment of hypertension through activation and effects on the immune system. And I, I... I was very intrigued by this new mechanism of how the blood pressure could be regulated by the immune system. And then I later learned, after starting a research relationship with him, that you only find 2-HOBA in a food in tartary buckwheat. So boom, here's a coincidence that we're growing a crop that has 2-HOBA in it. And if you look historically in traditional Chinese medicine, what did they say it was useful for? Heart and lung function, because it lowers blood pressure. And it improves cardiovascular function, lowers blood fats. So all of this kind of goes together, this 25-year, 100-year history, into what we're learning now from a science perspective. I love that. They In Hawaii, randomly, but uh, blood pressure, they have a tea, mamaki tea. I believe they grow it on the Big Island. That also apparently um, has a positive influence on blood pressure. But that's the only time I've ever heard uh, that. But um, So... For you, if somebody was, you know, everybody always wants to be told, oh, what's the perfect diet? I think everybody is so individual and you really drive that home when you're talking about functional medicine. It's like, yes, okay, there's going to be an overarching, but everybody is is unique. But if you were sort of going to, you know, prescribe a kind of diet or I never like to call it a diet, a nutritional way of living you know, what shows up for you that you really encourage people to do? 
Yeah, thank you. I, I agree with you. I don't I don't call it a diet. That's a four-letter bad word. And I call it a food plan. So come some kind of a food strategy. And I agree with you that there are certain principles that we can all agree on, I think, as to what would be a good objective food plan. First of all, stay away from junk, right? I think let's just put that out there, number one. Uh, high fructose corn syrup, sweeteners, uh, food additives, food humectants, emulsifiers, preservatives, all these things that were put in there to make food shelf stable, uh, high fat sugar and, and uh, salt foods. Th those are maybe convenient, but they manipulate us by the uh, tip of our tongue through taste to do things that are not so good for our health. So I think that that's where I'd start, number one. Uh, number two, uh, I would try to eat close to the earth because I think that the closer we get to the earth, the things that look like they once grew in the earth, the more likely we are to have things that are preserved in terms of their nutritional value. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean I'm I'm a vegetarian? No, I, I would consider myself a, a moderate. Um, I, I certainly eat animal products, but they're not the major part of my diet. I am kind of a pescatarian. You know, I live in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle. I do fish a lot. I eat a lot of salmon. Um, so I, I'm not kind of religious about uh, animal, although I am a believer in animal rights and animal protection, and I, I very much um, am concerned about animal husbandry as it relates to feedlots. But I, I think that staying with a, um, as Michael Pollan called, a mostly plant-based diet is, is a good idea. And if you can stay with organic, that's even better because we are trying to reduce the burden on the planet of noxious chemicals that are not only uh, making people sick, but making every other living thing sick, including even the microbiome that lives in our soil. And we probably know it's called the mycorrhiza, that the soil microbiome is just as important to preserve as is our microbiome and our health. And in fact, they're tied together. A bad soil microbiome is associated with a bad intestinal microbiome. So that would be the other thing I would say. Uh, the third thing I would say is try to eat things that are minimally processed so you can retain the natural composition of the material like the fiber components and the and the the nature of the, the way food is normally eaten in its natural state because it takes longer to digest and absorb and that's good. Slowing the digestive process gives a lot of more harmony to your body's rhythms. It allows your body to take its patience in getting that those nutrients distributed out to the various parts of need, the cells. If you eat these foods that are called high glycemic foods, where the nutrients and calories are rapidly absorbed, now suddenly the, the body goes on red alert, and now you have kind of a fire drill, and that can produce untoward effects like uh, increasing your hemoglobin A1C and increase your blood fats, increase your fatty liver, all those kind of things that are not so good. Uh, including, including increasing oxidative stress and inflammation. So slowing digestion and assimilation is good. And then lastly, I'm a believer that, the, that we, we can learn some things from uh, what is called the modified Mediterranean diet, because I think that that purest Mediterranean diet, high in, in triple virgin olive oil, um, high in fresh fruits and vegetables, eating the rainbow with a lot of colors that are not synthetic, real colors, a minimum a use of lean cuts of meat um, and the high fiber polyphenol rich diet because we now know that these um, these flavonoids and uh, these polyphenols that are in our foods like in Himalayan tartar buckwheat feed the microbiome to be healthier so they feed our immune system to be more resilient so all that fits together to guide 
when I go to the store, I'm going to shop on the aisles. You also, uh, besides the besides these things, you you are you like pre and probiotics, um, and we t- we mentioned the omega three fatty acids. Could you could you also um, discuss what PRMs are a little bit because that felt important. Uh, yeah, thank you. You're you're right in the cutting edge, really, of what we're learning right now about some of these nutritional factors. Listen, um, you know how so, much homework I do to talk to someone like you to even have a fighting chance to have a conversation. <laughs> hey, I, I think in MMA, MMA you're winning the the battle here. So <laughs> good on you. Okay. Well, I just so, you know, for my thing is that I want to take the best information from someone like you who really is in the science of things and make it achievable for people who are already navigating so much, but go, Oh, I heard that. I know what to do, you know? (laughs) Okay. So let's, let's talk a moment about PRMs as it relates to part of the omega-3 story. Right. So to distill down 40 years of learning on my part to a soundbite, let me take it to the following. When we when I, I use the word we, but I shouldn't say we, when a small group of people, um, Dyerberg and Bang, went to Greenland from Denmark and studied the Eskimos in Greenland and found that they were eating 70 to 80% of their calories as fat and that they didn't have heart disease. When at that time, which was the early 1980s, the whole thought was fat causes heart disease, they came back to Denmark and said, and and Dr. Dyerberg is a a MD, PhD, so he has a lot of medical training. He said, how could this be? How could these people be eating this high-fat diet and be having no heart disease? So they went back over and they did more extensive studies in which when they took the blood of these Eskimos and they measured in their red blood cells the, the, the kind of fat that was in their cells, they found it was a very uniquely different kind of fat that are in the cells of people that lived in Canada or the United States, they were the omega-3 fats that had names like icosapentaenoic and docosahexaenoic acid or EPA and DHA. And so they started to study this a much more um, rapidly caught on to many other investigators. And people then said, whoa, there's something about these omega-3 fats that are uniquely different than omega-6s or omega-9s or other families or saturated fatty acids. Um, that revolutionized the whole field of uh, uh, physiology as it related to fat nutrition or, or what's called lipid nutrition. Now, with that said, people then got in the nutrition supplement industry caught up with, well, what's doing the heavy lifting? Uh, we're not going to eat seal blubber or whale fat. So what's doing the heavy lifting? They said, oh, it must be EPA and DHA. So let's concentrate that to be as highly concentrated as possible to make a kind of a super amount of that in a, in a supplement so we could put it into a capsule. Now, when you do that, you have to go through many different chemical steps. It's not like eating the fish. And in so doing, you actually, to get it highly concentrated, you have to take it from its natural source, which is called a triglyceride source, that's the way we've been eating fat, into a different chemical form called an ester form by chemicalization. And then you have to super distill that. And now you concentrate it and put it in a pill and you say, now we have super fish oil. Well, it turns out that that super fish oil, as it's been examined more recently, may have lost some of the value it had when it was more in the natural state. 
because in the natural state, in the triglyceride form, maybe it was more bioavailable and it brought other things with it other than just EPA and DHA that were also important for the story, one of which is a uniquely discovered family of fatty acid derivatives called pro-resolving mediators, PRMs. Now, this was discovered by uh, an investigator at Harvard Medical School, this family, uh, some 20 years ago. And it's now been found that these PRMs are very important because they help to attenuate or to quench inflammation. Um, they're maybe 100 times more anti-inflammatory than EPA and DHA. And when you chemically process your fish oil too much, you eliminate those other materials from the oil. So now people are coming back to say, maybe the natural state of the oil in a pure non-oxidized form that has these PRMs as well as EPA, DHA, DPA, and other fatty acids is really where the best action should be. Now with all of that said, it leads to another coincidence for me. One of our family hobbies is boating, probably the principal family hobby. And my wife and I have done about 35,000 miles of boating in our boat up to Alaska over the years. Um, the last time we were up there, actually last summer, no, not last summer, two summers ago, we saw 105 grizzly bears. So it's a really adventuresome way to kind of spend some time in the summer. Well, I meet a lot of fishing people up there. And I had the opportunity a number of years ago on one of my trips to meet this gentleman that owned a fishing company out of Seattle. And he had made these very unique boats. And the boats were able to catch fish and process them on board so that they were flash frozen at minus 20 within 15 to 20 minutes of being a live fish. So he didn't have any degradation whatsoever of the material. Well, that led me to form a relationship with him. We ultimately then formed a company to go with the Native Alaska group to build the first pharmaceutical grade plant in Dutch Harbor, Alaska. You maybe know Dutch Harbor where the deadliest catch boats go out of. Um, and we have a plant now that is able to capture uh, the this unique kinds of fish relative to no degradation so that temperature never gets in the processing oil above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And now we are able to produce oil that has very high levels of PRMs, DPA, DHA, and so forth. That gives us the chance to have nature's full orchestration that we have as our immunorejuvenation component. That's why we call it um, uh, Omega Rejuvenate because it has that capability. So the combination of the tartary buckwheat story and the fish oil story took me in ways that I would have never anticipated just by being available to have conversations with people and, and, and seeing what's, what we can learn from the old that we can apply to the new. Well, Dr. Dr. Bland, I really appreciate uh, all of your work. I would also encourage people because I, I won't have, I, I would like to, but I, I don't have the time with you today. You you do talk a lot about uh, disease management and things. So if people want to, you know, look you up, uh, I think that there you have a lot of really, you know, helpful work out there. I would like to end this just with two more questions. And it it's because when I see people, I always, I'm always interested in the person also, and somebody who has, you know, lived a few years, you've been in a long marriage, you've been in a family for you standing where you are now. Um, what has, what have been helpful guiding lights for you as a long-term partner? Oh boy, that's a fantastic question. Thank you for asking that. That, um, that cuts right to the heart of the soul. Um, I think there are three things for me, and, and by the way, I'm not saying this is necessarily for everybody, but for me, 
number one, I have a belief system, and I, I've had it for as long as I can remember, that every person I meet is a good person. I never assume any, anything other than the goodness in people. And I've been rewarded to be to be shown that that is almost always true. There are some exceptions. I don't want to say that it's 100%, but there are exceptions. Most often, when I open up the opportunity to get to know a person's magic, I'm amazed at what they are, what they do, what their skills are, their thinking, who they are, where they come from. And it has made me a much better person as a consequence. So that's that's number one. Number two, I have tried really hard to work on the concept of tolerance, uh, which then ties to patience. Uh, because I'm a very time-urgent person. I'm, I'm you know always trying to do something new, trying to explore new boundaries, pushing the envelope. Um, and to balance that out, uh, I've found I need to tether myself to practicing patience and tolerance. And that then is a very strong de-stressor because it makes your life probably put it in the right perspective that the stuff that you're doing is important, but that's not that important. You need to keep things in balance, in context. I recall doing a series of seminars many years ago with a cardiologist from the University of Colorado who read a, uh, wrote a best-selling uh, book on cardiovascular disease, uh, which was around stress. And it was uh, he had come up with the concept of hot reactor theory. And he uh, one of his rules was um, don't sweat the small stuff. And then his second rule was everything's the small stuff. What he was really trying to get us to re remind ourselves is that often we blow things up in a super important proportions that are really imbalanced. And we look back and we say, why did I get so upset and out of control under that over that issue? It was It was not that important, really, in the grand scheme of things. So I think putting all that into context and then hanging out with people that you feel are really extraordinary people you can learn from every day, who can be your friends and your family and your associates and people that you haven't ever yet met, but you're going to meet and you're going to be uh, amazed to find out what you will about them. It just sets the world every day as an exploration of of how you can be a better person. That's kind of been my my mantra. All of us are, if we choose uh, to be parents, I think it's the most humbling uh, kind of role we play. I, I feel like because it's the one you know it's it's the greatest teacher. It's um, there's no I I feel like there's not really a bullseye. Is there anything that you has really shown up for you as someone who is a parent that seems to help things get moved? You know, like for me, listening has been and not fixing, you know, let's say, for example, with my daughters has been very helpful. Is there something for you as someone who is a parent and now a grandparent that shows up that you go, you know, this when I sort of adhere to some of this, it really moves in the the direction that, you know, is is favorable to everyone? Well, Gabby, I think you just said it. Uh, I, I just had the privilege of coming off um, a couple of weeks with my family in Alaska. And, and I, I was sons, I had only sons. So now I have granddaughters as well as grandsons. So this is a whole learning experience for me. It, it's really been extraordinary. And now I have granddaughter teenagers. And so that is even a new learning experience for me. So one of the evenings um, that we were sitting at dinner, I asked my granddaughters who are uh, 14, 16 and 19, um, I, I said, uh, so when you look at your grandparents and you talk to your friends, 
what kind of things do you do you see in your grandparents? What are what are the what are the ways that you talk about your grandparents? And I know it was a probing question. My oldest son Kelly always says, "Dad, you put everybody on the spot all the time. You're asking all these questions that are we need to go back and think about." But you know, people are used to it now in my family. So both all three of the uh, the young women said to me, they said, "When we think of you and and Susan, my my wife." We think of people that are safe to talk to about anything, that you're not judgmental. You don't have a need to tell us what to do. You provide an open ear to our concerns. And we always come away feeling that without telling us what to do, you gave us options for intelligent decision making. And I'm not saying that their parents don't do that, too, but there's a different kind of neutrality when it comes from your grandparents and when it comes from your parents. Because it's not seen as so instructive. It's seen as just, here's some experiential things you might. And, and I think both Susan and I are, are very open about, hey, here are some errors that we made along our lives you might want to be considered of. Because uh, you, uh, you will make errors. You just don't want to make irreversible errors. You want to make self-correcting errors. That's right. Well, Dr. Bland, I, I appreciate all of your work and your message. And is there any last thing have I missed that you would like to remind people or encourage people before I, I let you get on with the rest of your day? Well, I, I think the most important thing that probably comes through in everything that we've talked about is that health derives out of the feeling that a person is worthy of having good health. They have a belief in themselves that they are really good and they deserve to feel good and be good and that they are in control, that no one else should be controlling their body. No one else should tell them how they should manage themselves. They should step up to the plate, recognizing the most precious thing they own is their book of life. And if they treat it with respect, it'll give them 100 years of good response. And that to me is a very powerful message. However you execute on that, that's a big, bold idea. We are in ownership of our future. Amen. Thank you. Thanks a million. Really been a privilege talking with you. Thank you so much. That wraps it up for today. Make sure to follow us on Spotify for free episodes and subscribe to The Gabby Reese Show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me at Gabby Reese on Instagram and Twitter. Aloha. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.